Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. first lesson this morning comes from the book of Psalms. It's the 19th Psalm. Let us listen that we may hear. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from the wedding canopy, and along and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the ends of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the souls, that the decrees of the Lord are sure, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is clear, enlightening his eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than any gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than any honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But we, but who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back the servant from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of a great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word of the Lord. The second reading comes from the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, in the 21st chapter, and I'm reading today from the Common English Bible Translation. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a winepress in it, built a tower, then he rented it to a tenant farmer and took a trip. When it was time for the harvest, he sent his servants to the tenant farmers to collect their fruits. But the tenant farmers grabbed his servants. They beat some, and some they killed, and some they stoned to death. Again, the landowners sent other servants, more than the first group. They were treated in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and we'll have his inheritance. They grabbed him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. And when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenant farmers? Jesus asked. 
they said. He will totally destroy those wicked farmers, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit when it's ready. Jesus said to them, Haven't you ever read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it's amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that God's kingdom will be taken away from you, and it will be given to people who produce its fruit. Whoever falls on the stone will be crushed, and the stone will crush the person it falls upon. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they knew that Jesus was talking about them. They were trying to arrest him, but they feared the crowds who thought Jesus was a prophet. The word of the Lord. Please join me in a brief word of Scripture prayer. May the words of my mouth and our mouths together be acceptable in the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This week, another horrific, terrible act of violence happened. Not even fully seven days ago. Gunmen opened fire on a crowd. You have heard the news, and I am not here to retell it, nor am I here to advocate for any particular action or another. Save one, maybe, but you'll get to that. In our divided nation and in our time, it is sufficient to say we can't agree. Really, we can't agree on just about anything. I've made jokes about disagreements before. You've heard it. I mean, I tell it probably several times a year. When you... uh, where there are two Presbyterians, how many opinions are there? At least three, right? Yeah, the ability to tell a joke and to get it and not to have to try to explain it is it's a gift. Have you ever told a joke that you had to explain? You don't tell it again. It's hard. Being able to tell a joke, being able to understand the humor in it, that's, that's a sign of maturity. And I think it's a sign of grace. Now, Paul did not list that in the gifts of the spirits in, when he wrote to the different churches in the early years of the Christian faith. But I have to think that the gift of humor is a gift of the spirit. The ability that we have to use our faculties, to use our intelligence, to, to be able to have conversations that, where there is disagreement in meaningful ways, I have to think those are signs that God's presence is growing in the world. And I think that makes God glad. I think it makes God glad to know that those who f- claim and follow God through Jesus Christ can speak to other people around the world, other children whom God created, for God is the creator that is beyond our boundaries, 
I think it makes God glad when we are able to say who we are and how we understand God is at work in the world. And that is compelling. That is compelling. But in our nation and in the world at this time, not just national boundaries, but throughout the world, this gift of dialogue, this gift of humor, these things are not fully appreciated. Maybe they're not even being developed. Disagreement is seen on all sides, not as inquiry that seeks resolution, but as obfuscation that is clothed as self-righteousness. In the wake of the Las Vegas attack, we have heard any number of occasions and persons saying, we need to pray. We need to pray for those who were attacked. We pray for their families, and I cannot disagree. And so that's what I'm going to tell you to do. We need to pray. That's what I'm going to tell you to do. We need to pray. I believe there is power in prayer. Ten years ago, the governor of Georgia, Sonny Perdue, asked the people of Georgia to pray for rain. There was a drought going on. And he took a little bit of guff for that. But I believe there is the need to do that. I believe that public prayers for the public welfare are appropriate. And we need to offer them up. And so I prayed for rain. And the prayers in the church where I served at the time, I included those as part of the petitions. We even printed a banner and put it up on outside the front of the church, encouraging people to pray. Not as an act of self-righteousness, but as an act of faith. Prayer is not a talisman. Prayer is not a rabbit's foot. It is not a lucky charm. Prayer, when it is offered, does not guarantee any particular results. It opens us up to communication with God. And as we are open to receiving that, we are open in our own way of understanding things in a different light. And we are led to growth. And development. We pray in hope and in faith. Hebrews 11 defines faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. There is an element in our faith life that is unseen, and we work our way toward that. There are any number of sayings that have happened or that have developed about prayer. You know them, I'm sure. One that seems to have great staying power is that God helps those who help themselves. You've heard that? Yes? Yes, you've heard that? Maybe even said it. Maybe, yeah. Okay. The saying really is ancient. It goes back to, the, to Greece, uh, ancient Greece. But its particular formation, God helps those who help themselves, comes not from Scripture but it comes from Benjamin Franklin and his Poor Richard's Almanac. That was published in 1732. Check your American history. That was before our United States of America was formed. That aphorism, that, that, that saying comes from 
285 years ago, 50 plus years before our nation was formed. When you think about that saying though, it may sound like it's drawing you in to encourage you to pray, but what it's also saying is that if you don't get, if the results aren't what you think they should be, then you haven't worked hard enough. You haven't prayed hard enough. You haven't done what's needed to. Yet God's grace doesn't come to us because we work for it. It doesn't happen because we think we earn it. We don't work for a number of credits on some sort of divine ledger, and then at the end, things are totaled up, and the Excel, spread, Excel spreadsheet and we get a pass. That's not how it works. God's grace, God's love comes to us not because of what we have done, but because of who God is. A mother does not love her child at birth, at that moment of birth, because the child has earned it. We love because God first loved us. That's the scripture. But in our human relationships, we love as an extension, not, not to, to gain. We love because love burst forth. That's what love is. So to say that God helps those who help themselves is, is to say that we earn it, but we can't earn God's grace. There's another saying out there that's similar to it, sort of a corollary, if you will. Pray as though everything depended on God. Act as though everything depended on you. Have you heard that one too? It's, it's kind of similar. Gerald May, who was a psychiatrist and a Christian theologian, reflected on this. He didn't like that saying. He says, it appears to encourage prayer and intimacy with God, but before you know it, it tells you to act as though God weren't in the picture at all. It says it doesn't matter what God wants or what God does because it's all on you. Again, it's all on you. That's what that saying means. We are encouraged to think about God, yeah, to use any one of those phrases we do to refer to God. But in reality, those sayings are saying God doesn't matter at all. Gerald May wondered where the saying came from and why it had such enduring quality. He tracked down a whole lot of different variations on it, and he, he came back to some words of St. Ignatius of Loyola. They sounded kind of like that, but not exactly. Ignatius was a Spanish military officer. He was wounded in battle, and while he was recovering, he had a religious conversion, and he used his military training to think through how to apply that to the Christian life. Ignatius was a Catholic, and he was fervent in his certainty that the Catholic faith was right. And at the time of his life, the Protestant Reformation was happening, and he took it as a personal mission to put into check the Protestant Reformation. 
he organized the Society of Jesus, known as the Jesuits, in 1540. And they took on a whole new um, agency for the Roman Catholic Church. It is even uh, known that because of the work of the Jesuits, John Calvin, who we Presbyterians claim as our ancestor in faith, John Calvin had to flee France where he had grown up and began his life. He, fle he fled France and ended up settling in Switzerland. May discovered that Ignatius, though, did not write exactly that saying that people say is attributed to him, pray as though everything depends on God and act as if it depends on you. He didn't write it exactly that way. He, what he wrote was more like pray as if everything depends on you and act as if everything depends on God. Do you hear the difference? Pray as if everything depends on you and act as if everything depends on God. Hmm. Act like things depend on God. Jesus, from the scripture reading this morning, he was in the middle of an inquiry by religious leaders. He was being checked out. He was being tested. This account happens in the 21st chapter, and, and earlier in that chapter, Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem, and then he had gone to the temple to teach. He had seen the money changers, and he had seen the, the merchants selling animals for sacrifice, and he had turned the tables over, and he had told them all to leave. And he had told, he began some teaching, and, and the religious leaders said to Jesus, who, who gave you the authority to do this? Who told you you could come in here and just turn over our world? And Jesus replied by saying, well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the answer to that question if you answer a question for me. And they, they played that game, and Jesus said, you know, John the Baptist, now, was he a prophet from God, or did, did um, was he just somebody that had a, an idea and came up from the human ranks. That's not exactly the way the Scripture phrases it, but that's what it means. Was his work divine, divinely inspired, or was it something that he just thought of himself? And the religious leaders say, well, you know, they don't say this out loud, but they think it in their heads, and they kind of go over to the side, and they say, if we say John was a prophet from God, then the question is, why didn't we follow him? Because that's our business, right? But if we say he was just some ordinary guy who got up and made a lot of noise, then a lot of people like him and, and they follow him and they will be upset with us for saying that. So we're just going to say we don't know. And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what, I don't know either. I'm not going to tell you my answer either. I will, though, tell you a couple of stories. I'm going to tell you some stories about vineyards. Now, remember in the Old Testament, Jesus is, is saying to the religious leaders, remember that there's this, this setting in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, where a vineyard is described, and it's the people Israel. Isaiah 5 begins, My beloved have a vineyard on a very fertile hill. 
He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choices, choice vines. He built a watchtower over the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes. You hear that? Yeah, Jesus, Jesus says to them, you know this story of the vineyard? Well, I got two stories to tell you about vineyards. There's the vineyard owner and he says to one of his sons one day, I want you to go to the vineyard and do some work. But the son says, no way I'm going. But later on in the day, he says, well, you know, I will. Later, he says to, to the, a, a second son, he says, I want you to go to the vineyard and do some work. And the second son says, I'm on it, dad. I'll be there. But he never shows up. You've heard this story. Jesus says, which one does the work of the Father, the will of the Father? The one who said he wouldn't do it, but ended up doing it. The one who did the actions. Then Jesus says, tells this story, this second parable. The vineyard owner leases out the vineyard to some tenants. The crop gets to the point of being ready to be picked. And so the owner sends them message, a message that he wants to have the fruit that has been developed. But the tenants want to keep it for themselves. So they beat up the messengers. They send them back. He does this not once, but twice. And then the owner says, you know, I'll send my son, my heir, the one who will carry the message. They're not going to mess with that, are they? But the, the tenants say, you know what? If we kill this guy, then who's going to own the farm? Who's going to own the vineyard? We'll take it over. And so they kill the heir. What happens to those tenants who do this pretty clear. There is justice and retribution that awaits them. But it's not just that, because it doesn't end with vengeance. It doesn't end with retribution. It ends with the vineyard owner then sending others back to the vineyard to claim the good fruit and to claim the work of that. Knowing that construction is a, needs a strong foundation, Jesus also calls on a psalm, a reference from a psalm, Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. And Jesus is saying to them, you need to pay attention to this. It is needed for the structure the religious leaders knew what Jesus was talking about, but they did not want to admit that they knew it. I think the religious leaders of that day would have said something like, well, pray as if it all depends on God. Act like it depends on you. That's what the religious leaders would have said. That's what the tenants were saying. Act like it all depends on you. But Jesus offered a different vision pray for yourself and your involvement, act like the situation really does depend on God. 
Trust God. Find your way forward with trusting God in this. Really, truly, trust the Lord. The result of this vineyard tale is that it does depend on the vineyard owner. It's the owner who is the one that calls things in. The tenants may have thought they were going to change the outcome, but they did not. The good fruit was still in the vineyard, and it still had to be harvested. It still had to be shared. And the owner was determined for that to happen. The owner wasn't simply interested in closing things off with retribution. The owner wanted to find a way to expand what was in the vineyard, to share that in the world. When confronting evil, like we have this week, it is easy to default into thinking that God helps those who help themselves. And it's corollary that we should pray like everything depends on God and act like everything depends on us. But to ignore, to do so, ignores the reality that we can pray that things depend on us, but we must act as if everything depends on God. It's about the fruit that has been produced. It's about the way in which we harvest that in the world, not for our benefit, but for the well-being and the blessing of the world. The vineyard owner, God, wants to bless the world. It's about finding ways to share that blessing, not just with a particular group of people, not just with us, but with the whole of creation. In Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he closes with a, a, a reflection or an injunction to, uh, on how we are to live from now on, brothers and sisters, he writes, if anything is excellent and if anything is admirable, focus your thoughts on these things. All that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, all that is lovely, all that is worthy of praise, practice these things. Whatever you learned, received, heard, or saw in us, do these things. Not because we have done them, Paul is writing them, but because these are reflections of what God is sharing with us. We each have our own little vineyards, our own little plots where we can produce fruits. And the challenge is how do we produce those fruits? Do we produce those fruits for ourselves? Or do we produce those fruits so that the world will be blessed? That's what it means to bless. Whenever we say that word, bless, it means that we become vehicles to share what God has made in the world and what God offers in the world. Followers of Jesus, if we do not live in this way, then who will? Jesus shared this with the religious leaders, and they got it. They understood it, and they resisted. 
we today as Presbyterian Christians in Columbus, Georgia, and East Alabama in the 21st century, we need to live as if these things matter. These aren't just words that come from our mouths. These are ways of sharing what God has prepared for you, for me, and for all of creation. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.